Hi there. Welcome to Tech Talk Weekly. I'm Bob from Creation Station. This is our weekly show where we give you two to three cool news stories, tell you a fun library fact, and get you on your way in 15, 20 minutes. That's not happening today, guys. Uh, we are going to show off a really fun thing today because I have Miss Patricia Moore from NASA here. Patricia, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Bob. Are you there, Miss Patricia? I am. Can you not hear me? I think we're having a problem with you hearing. I can hear you. I can hear you. There we go. Now we can. Okay, great. Yeah. Okay. So I was telling I was telling you and everyone that's listening, thanks for having me. Beautiful. <laughs> so, Miss Patricia, here's from NASA. Tell us, who are we going to be able to talk with today? Sure. So I work at the Johnson Space Center and I'm part of the Artemis communication team. And we're doing a series of events over the summer um, to share what's going on with our Artemis missions. And today's special guest is from the Kennedy Space Center Exploration Ground Systems team. And his name is Eric Weaver. And he is the, the engineering deputy director for the Jacobs team, who is the prime contractor, the prime company that's working to get all of our rockets and systems ready to go to the moon. So, um, Eric, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Are, do you want to just jump right into the presentation, Bob, and, and get going? There we go. All right. Well, I will go ahead and progress slides. So just let me know when you're ready, Eric. Yeah, we'll do. So yeah, thanks again for the uh, introduction and thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that everybody's here to learn about the uh, spaceships that I get to work on every day. So I guess we'll just start with the next slide. So like uh, Patricia said, my name is Eric Weaver. I, uh, I am the uh, Deputy Director of Engineering for the Jacobs team uh, on Exploration Ground Systems at Kennedy Space Center. I grew up in um, uh, Western Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. Actually, ironically enough, I grew up in a town, uh, a town called Apollo, Pennsylvania. Um, so should have been, maybe, maybe should have been called Artemis, but uh, in any case, um, uh, I got a Bachelor of Science degree in, in civil engineering from Bucknell University. I got my Master's of Engineering degree from Lehigh University, both in Pennsylvania. I started on the shuttle program in 2009, worked on uh, the shuttle program for a, a few years. And then uh, after that, transitioned to the Artemis program here in uh, 2013. And I've basically been here ever since. I'm a licensed professional engineer in the states of Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia. I'm a certified maintenance and reliability professional, as well as a certified project management professional. Uh, my hobbies include uh, traveling, golfing, scuba diving, uh, snow skiing, and cheering for the three Pittsburgh uh, professional sports teams. And if you're a baseball fan, you might argue that one of them is, is not a really professional team, but um, nevertheless, they do compete in professional sports. Um, and uh, just fun fact, too, I also applied to be an astronaut three times. Uh, one time I even got called back, which was pretty awesome because it's, uh, I think, probably, if not the hardest, maybe top three, top five hardest jobs to get in the entire world. So it was cool to get called back at least one time. 
Uh, next slide. So, um, so NASA has a lot of programs that they work on. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done on those programs and so much work so that they need private partners from private industry in order to help the government with, you know, with these programs. And the one program that we're going to talk about today specifically is called the Artemis program and the specific partner, NASA's partner that is partnering with, um, with them on the Artemis program is Jacobs. And that's kind of, you know, where I come in. So next slide. So in this video, we're gonna see, um, you know, how, how the boots on the ground are putting the boots on the moon, if you wanna play the video. module and service module have been fueled and are now being mated to the launch abort system prior to delivery to the vehicle assembly building for stacking atop the rocket. 50 years ago, NASA stunned the world by landing humans on the moon with the Apollo missions. Today, we are helping NASA to go back to the moon to build a sustainable human presence there. We are proud to be the boots on the ground that are putting boots on the moon. All right. Um, hopefully, hopefully the uh, the sound worked for most of you. I I, I kind of got cut out there at the beginning, but hopefully you kind of got the, the got the gist of introducing our rocket and the Artemis program with that. So, with the Artemis program, um, you know, like I said, putting you know boots on the ground, putting boots on the moon here at Kennedy Space Center, and stemming from Apollo, Artemis is in Greek mythology is the twin sister of Apollo, um, and the goddess of the moon. And our plan is to uh, land the first woman. And the next man on the moon by 2024, and then when we and we when we go to the moon, um, within the next decade or so, we're there to stay. So you know we're going to be you know building sustainable habitats there, and um, you know a, a lunar orbiting um, station that we're going to get into a little bit later. But when we when we do go to the moon this time, we're hope, hoping to be there to stay, just kind of like the International Space Station, where we're you know built the International Space Station, and we are there to stay in low Earth orbit. So. Next slide. So like I said, NASA is um, working to establish a permanent human presence on the moon within the next decade or so. Um, the moon will provide us an opportunity to test all of our new tools, our new instruments and equipment that can be used to go um, onto Mars from there, including the human habitats, the uh, life support systems, technologies and practices that could help us build self-sustaining outposts away from Earth. That's the moon is basically acting as our stepping stone to get much further into um, into deep space, deep space, including Mars. Uh, next slide. So with that, we've got another video and um, I want you guys to meet the Ar Artemis team. 
to go. With Artemis, we are going to stay. Proving that humanity can live on the moon, Mars, and other worlds, and share the wonders of the solar system with all. Our story is one of people. All those who make this journey possible. From advocates across communities, to companies across industries, to countries around the world, we achieve this collective endeavor. Our efforts create impact for all. Technologies that revolutionize industries. And jobs that bring prosperity to people. The discoveries from space benefit the way we live on Earth today. And those from the moon will create a better future for generations to come. But to do that, we must go. Hi, I'm Chell Ingram. My name is Raja Chari. Kayla Barron. Kate Rubens. Hi, I'm Christina Cook. NASA astronaut Joe Acaba. Jessica Amir. Woody Hoberg. Anne McLean. Stephanie Wilson. My name is Johnny Kim. Nicole Mann. Victor Glover. Jessica Watkins. Hi, I'm Matthew Dominic. Jasmine Mogbelli. Frank Rubio. Scott Tingle. This is what we do. This is what we will do. Let's go. We go to the moon to learn how to live on other planets. For the benefit of all. Awesome. So, so uh, how are we getting there? there? Um, uh, Artemis, Artemis is a, um, it's a multi-phase mission, uh, including Artemis, Artemis 1, Artemis, Artemis 2, 2, and Artemis 3, Artemis all in production right now. Artemis 1 to a very great extent, and even Artemis 4, actually. There's flight hardware being being built and uh, put together right now for, for Artemis 4 even. Um, so we're well on our way with the Artemis missions, and especially for Artemis 1, as, as you're going to see. So the, the you, right in, on this slide, you see the uh, the six key elements that are being worked. That includes exploration ground systems. That's basically all the structures on the ground that it takes uh, to support launching or launching and building the rocket and so on. The space launch system, which is the rocket itself. Orion, which is the capsule that sits on top of the space launch system. Gateway, the lunar landers, and even the Artemis generation spacesuits that you see on, on the right. So um, next slide. For the purposes of our presentation today and the work going on at the Kennedy Space Center, um, I'm going to concentrate on the first three, including the Space Launch System, the Orion spacecraft, and then the Exploration Ground Systems. Next slide. So starting with the Space Launch System. The, uh, the Space Launch System, or the SLS, is the world's most powerful rocket, and it's comprised of four major, compo major components. Uh, the cargo hold, the exploration upper upper core stage, the core stage itself, and the solid rocket boosters. It's the only vehicle capable of sending humans to deep space, which is pretty much anything beyond, beyond low Earth orbit where the International Space Station is orbiting. Um, the SLS stands at uh, 322 foot tall. It weighs 5.75 million pounds, and it has 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust. It is the capability of sending 154,000 pounds to low Earth orbit, which would be like the equivalent, as you see on the slide, of like 12 full-grown elephants. So SLS Block 1, which is for Artemis 1, is going to be the workhorse for the Artemis program. Next slide. NASA's Orion spacecraft will serve as the exploration vehicle 
that will carry the that carry the crew into space, provide emergency abort capability, and the sustain the crew during space travel. Then afterwards, it'll provide a safe re-entry from deep space back to Earth. Orion will launch atop the uh, SOS rocket and is designed to accommodate 99% of the human population. Um, the spacecraft being 99% uh, of the human population being, so anyone from like four foot 10 all the way up to six, six foot five would be able to ride in the space capsule and, and go to outer space. Um, it can accommodate four astronauts and like, and compared to the, the capsules that you, you remember maybe, you know, when you were, when you were younger from Apollo or Gemini or Mercury, th this thing is like a living room compared to those things. So much, much bigger, much, much more capability. Next slide. Um, Jacobs is creating the tiles for the Orion thermal protection system. Uh, so as, as Orion enters the atmosphere from a mission from the moon, uh, its heat shield must protect the vehicle and the crew from external temperatures of almost 5,000 degrees. So just for comparison's sake, the, the melting point for titanium is 3,000 degrees, and the surface of the sun is about 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, so Orion will return to Earth from the moon at a speed of about 25,000 miles an hour, and if it were coming from a, a trip from Mars, it would be traveling at about 27 miles, uh, 27,000 miles per hour. That's about 35 times faster than a speeding bullet. Um, and like I said before, um, Kennedy Space Center is EGS, and that's yeah, and this is a big part of what we're working right now. So next slide. And it, with EGS, it's, it's build, launch, and recovery. And we're we're going to go into these things a you know a little bit more detail here in subsequent slides. But again, EGS, everything on the ground it takes to receive, process, fuel, transport, stack, launch, and then retrieve the spaceship once it comes back once it comes back to Earth. Next slide. So build uh, to build the rock to build the rocket. Uh, Spaceflight hardware arrives at Kennedy Space Center from all over the country, and, and actually sometimes from all over the world. Uh, we have we have international part partners in Canada, Japan, the European Union, you name it. Um, and it's our team's job to accept the accept the hardware, process the hardware, and then and and then stack and build it in one of our processing facilities. So, for example, the one picture that you see on the right is a picture of our vehicle assembly building, the uh, or the VAB. The uh, vehicle assembly building is built in 1965. It's one of the largest buildings in the world, and it stands at 525 foot tall. And in fact, um, it's almost like a 500 uh, a 500 foot cube, being about 500 by 500 by 500 foot tall. And that's where the the rocket is built. It's basically a garage for rockets. Next slide. Probably one of the most exciting parts of our job is that we launch rockets. And we have to have special equipment and special software that helps us do that. Um, that includes the crawler transporter that you see on, that you see on the left, uh, the mobile launcher, the launch control center, and launch pad 39B, which we're all going to get into um, a little bit more detail in subsequent slides. Next slide. We also have a landing and recovery team that departs from Kennedy Space Center in Florida to recover the capsule from a U.S. Navy ship after it splashes down in the Pacific Ocean. And even before we go on the missions, we have practice recovery missions in order to test our capabilities to retrieve the capsule. And it also helps keep the team sharp that, that's working on the ship. Next slide. So Artemis 1 is the first in a broad series 
of exploration missions that will take humans to deep space and eventually to Mars. It's designed to be a flight test, basically, of our entire system because it's unmanned. Uh, for Artemis 1, SLS will carry the Orion spacecraft uh, on a mission 275,000 miles away from Earth. And just to put that kind of in perspective, Mars at its closest is 36 million miles away from Earth. And that's give or take many, many millions of miles when it's at its furthest. Next slide. So the next video, we're gonna get, highlight some mission specifics for Artemis 1 and beyond. Artemis 1 will lift off from launch pad 39B at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida with 8.8 .8 million pounds of thrust provided by the most powerful rocket in the world, our Space Launch System rocket, or SLS. The uncrewed flight will be the first integrated test of SLS, our new Orion spacecraft and exploration ground systems at Kennedy. Artemis 1 will send Orion beyond the moon, 280,000 miles from Earth, farther than any human spacecraft has ever flown. This is not NASA doing this. This is the United States of America doing this, this program, the Artemis program. And there are companies all across our country that have a part in it. So there is kind of this wave of excitement being generated just by saying, we're going back to the moon. After the upper stage of the rocket separates from Orion, the upper stage will deploy small satellites over several days to perform science experiments and technology demonstrations. Orion will make its multi-day outbound trip to the moon, propelled by a service module provided by the European Space Agency. Engineers will test Orion's systems on the way to the moon. Then, Orion will fly about 60 miles above the lunar surface, using the moon's gravity and engines on the service module to enter a lunar orbit. After about a month and a total distance of over a million miles, Orion will return home faster and hotter than any spacecraft has before. A primary goal of Artemis 1, ensure Orion safely returns to Earth before we fly with humans. When we do, we'll build our capability for sustainable lunar exploration, preparing us for missions farther into the solar system. Initially, what we'd like to do is start establishing a presence on the moon. So we're gonna establish going back there on a regular basis, and then we'll end up setting up Gateway, and we would launch to the Gateway, and from Gateway, land on the surface of the moon. We are there for, you know, weeks, months on end. And there, we're gonna be able to test out all the hardware and the habitats and the hatches and the suits and the rovers that'll allow us to prove out those technologies the moon will lead the way to Mars, and we should be there within the next couple of decades. All right, so, All right, so building a rocket is basically a step-by-step -step step process. I mean, it's a very complex step-by-step -step process, but nevertheless, at a high level, um, you can see that kind of the step-by-step -step process laid out on this slide. Um, some of the following slides will highlight some of the the accomplishments that we've had so far um, in going through this process. So next slide. First was the uh, solid solid rocket boosters. So they, they were the first to be assembled and stacked in the vehicle assembly building. And they are the largest ever built for human space flight. At 177 feet tall, uh, the, each booster weighs 1.6 million pounds. The, jobs of the, the job of the boosters is basically to provide the thrust or the force 
necessary to get the rocket off the ground and on its way to space. Next slide. The core stage is well, pretty much that big orange thing in the middle. And it was lifted into place and uh, very, very carefully between the solid rocket boosters using one of the five overhead cranes in the, in the vehicle assembly building. At 212 feet tall, it's made up of liquid fuel and that's the fuel that's used to feed the RS-25 engines, which are the four engines at the bottom of the rocket. Next slide. Next up was the LVSA or the Launch Vehicle Stage Adapter. And you can, and it's that orange cone looking thing that you see on the top of the, on, of the middle picture. So you can think of this basically as a connection piece between the core stage and then the next piece of flight hardware that we're gonna cover, which is the ICPS or the Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage. So it's basically a connection piece unto this, the, ICP, the ICPS, which was, which was also integrated, stacked on top of the LVSA. And the ICPS, the, ICPS, the Interim Cryogenic Propulsion Stage again, um, will lie just below the Orion capsule at the top of NASA's space flight rocket and it's a system that will help carry and propel the Orion capsule into space once, it, once it's in space. Next slide. So everything in the VAB, everything in the vehicle assembly building is stacked on the mobile launcher, we like to call the ML, uh, which is shown here in, the, in these couple pictures. The uh, mobile launcher is 355 foot tall and weighs 10.5 million pounds. And once our team completes stacking, of all the remaining Artemis One flight hardware in the vehicle assembly building, including the, the Orion spacecraft and the launch abort system. Um, the, we will then roll out the, um, the rocket onto the launch pad uh, for all the tests and system checkouts prior to launch. Now, speaking of rollout, the rollout is done on the crawler transporter, which is a piece of machinery that has been carrying rockets and, and spacecrafts to the launch pad for over 50 years, including the, all the, the Apollo missions, uh, the shuttle missions, and now the, the Artemis missions. Uh, there are two crawler transporters at Kennedy Space Center, and each one is about the size of a baseball infield. They weigh 6.6 .6 million pounds and can carry eight, 18 million pounds, um, each of them. So uh, empty, the crawler transporter moves, um, and it blazes at about three miles per hour. But when we have a rocket on top of it, it moves about one mile per hour max um, with many starts and stops to uh, check a lot of different systems on its way from the vehicle assembly building to the launch pad, which can take at least uh, an eight hour shift. And then um, finally, uh, it, it arrives at its final stop on earth anyways, uh, which is launch pad 39B. And there are several elements on Launchpad 39B, which make it great for launching SLS and other rockets. Um, first of all, you, um, you see in the foreground kind of the, uh, the water tower. The water tower holds uh, roughly 400,000 gallons of water. And when released, flows at about 1.1 million gallons per minute during launch. And this is solely due to sound suppression in order to keep the acoustics down because water is a very good substance for uh, absorbing acoustics and sound. Uh, without it, it um, the, just the sound alone of the rocket and the boosters and the engines would probably shake the mobile launcher apart, shake, maybe shake the vehicle apart, and maybe even parts of the pad. 
So the sound suppression system is absolutely critical um, in order to have a successful launch. Um, in addition, you have the uh, three lightning towers there that are shown, um, which protects the vehicle from dangerous lightning strikes in Florida, which um, we have very, very often, especially this time of year. Um, each, each lightning tower is 600 foot tall. And in fact, uh, if you remember at the, be the beginning of the presentation, one of the pictures was, was, was me on top of one of these towers, which is a pretty breathtaking, not only a view, but it's pretty breathtaking getting there as well. Um, on, those, on those three lightning towers, there's, a, there's an elevator that goes on the outside of the tower to about the 450 foot level. Then you walk out on a catwalk, uh, you climb a ladder for about 50 feet on the outside of the tower, um, while you're tied off, of course, but it's still on the outside of the tower for about 50 feet to get to about the 100, or the 500 foot level. And then you see the uh, kind of, we call them candlesticks because they look like candlestick looking things on top. Those are all, um, those are all, all fiberglass um, uh, tubes that sit on top of the lightning towers. There's about a hundred foot free climb in order to get to the top of them. So it's quite a journey to get to the top, but once you get to the top, the, the view is just almost nothing better. And then finally, we have the flame trench that's uh, shown there in the middle. Uh, it can withstand a, a peak temperature of 2200 degrees Fahrenheit. And it basically shoves all of the harmful exhaust, um, exhaust fumes away from the vehicle during launch. Next slide. Next, we have the launch control center. And really, nothing could launch without the launch control center. It's the, it's the hub of launch operations at the Kennedy Space Center. It's powered by some of the brightest minds in the world. And that team is responsible for overseeing all the processing and launch operations that we do at the Space Center. It's made up of software developers, coders, uh, computer hardware experts, and they do the countdown and the launch sequence prior to launch. So they're the folks um, that if you hear on the TV or the radio, they're, you know, they're saying go, no go on things, you know, ECS go, GCS go, hydrogen go. Um, those are the folks sitting right there on those chairs. Next slide. And then lastly is the Orion recovery operations. Uh, when NASA's Orion spacecraft returns to Earth following Artemis 1, it will splash down in this, the uh, Pacific Ocean off the coast of San Diego. And after splashdown, it'll be retrieved in the ocean by NASA with the help of the US Navy uh, using what you, um, you see here in this picture is a open well deck US Navy ship. Um, now. This is a lot different than what we used to do during Apollo because, uh, you know, unlike shuttle where we didn't have to uh, retrieve a capsule um, during Apollo, uh, they did something similar, but they actually used a crane on the side of a, of a U.S. Navy ship. And it was uh, it could get very tense at times uh, because you can imagine it's like uh, bobbing for capsules. So pulling uh, using a winch and a, and, and tow pin system, um, pulling it into the um, kind of the back of this ship of this open well depth ship is much safer and more effective way to, to do it than we used to. Next slide. So as far as the missions uh, themselves are concerned, um, Artemis is all about going to the moon and going beyond um, into deep space and on onto Mars. But in order to get to Mars, uh, we first have to go back to the moon and that's that's where Artemis 1 comes in. So Artemis 1 will take the Orion spacecraft thousands of miles beyond the moon, farther than any, actually farther than any spacecraft built for humans that, have, that has ever flown um, over the course of about three weeks. Um, and remember, there's going to be no astronauts in this one. It's basically just a test flight to make sure that we're ready to go on to the next steps. And next slide. 
Now, Artemis II will have crew. Um, this will be the first time in over 50 years that uh, astronauts will be will actually be in the moon's environment. Uh, Artemis II will have four astronauts on board. They will fly 4,600 miles beyond the moon, uh, do a couple slingshot maneuvers, and then come back, come speeding back to Earth after that. Next slide. Then we have Artemis III. And Artemis III is the big one because that's going to land the first woman and the next man on the moon. Uh, two of the four astronauts that will be going on this trip will go to the moon's south pole using a special vehicle that we call the human landing system and carry with them science tools and equipment and, and whatnot um, in order to do experiments. So they'll be living um, in the landing system for about six and a half days, they'll collect sample, samples, do some moonwalks, um, and then they'll, they'll return home from there. Next slide. Now, as I touched on earlier, um, Gateway, um, in addition to landing on the moon, uh, the, in future Artemis missions, Gateway will basically act as an international space station, but orbiting the moon. So um, instead of being around Earth uh, in low Earth orbit, it will be around low moon orbit. Um, again, that'll be in future Artemis missions and some uh, certainly that we're all looking very much forward to. Next slide. And then finally, you know, we, there's a lot more hardware that's going to be going um, on the moon that we're that we're going to be that we're going to be developing, testing, and, and implementing. Um, that includes um, the habitats, landers, um, new spacesuits, um, uh, rovers, and so on. And all you know, future Artemis missions, uh, Artemis four and beyond. And again, really, really going to be looking forward to these missions here in the next decade or so. Next slide. So again, I, I've had the I really have the for, fortunate privilege uh, to work on the sh shuttle program for several years, um, and then this program basically since its since its, its inception, uh, a lot of work has been done to put together the largest, most powerful rocket in the world, and we we are really well on our way here at Kennedy Space Center to to do so. Uh, I, I really want to thank everybody so much for joining me today. I really hope you all enjoyed it, uh, and, and and I hope that you learned something about. Um, NASA's next, you know, exciting steps beyond Earth. So, thank you. All right, let me unmute my mic. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'm going to go ahead and just jump into Q and A. I see that we have some questions already. Um, for but for those of you watching live on Facebook, please um, ask ask some questions of Eric and I. We'd love to tell you more about what we're working on here at NASA and at Jacobs. So our first question is from Aria, and she'd like to know, how do you launch the rocket? It's a pretty pretty intense uh, answer, I imagine, but maybe you can simplify it a little bit for us. <laughs> I think you're muted, um, Eric. Is that better? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you All now. Right. Sorry about that. Uh, no, that's a that's a that's a very broad question. I'll try to give as as specific answer as as I possibly can. I mean, um, how we launch? You know, we we build the rockets. Um, we build them in the vehicle the vehicle assembly building, roll them out to the launch pad. How they actually launch is is really through the fuel, and actually most of the fuel is liquid oxygen and and liquid hydrogen, uh, and that's what's actually used for the most part in order to propel the rocket. Um, you know, into low Earth orbit and then and into space. From there, um, you know, I was talking about the interim cryogenic propulsion stage. 
that is the piece of flight hardware that actually propels the uh, the Orion spacecraft beyond low Earth orbit, you know, wherever they're going, whether it be the, the moon, Mars, or another destination. So hopefully that kind of answers answers the question, but. <laughs> I, I think that's a great answer. Yeah. All right, so our next question comes from Robert, and um, this will be an interesting one. So are there any plans for Orion to fly on the Blue Origin or SpaceX rocket? Not that I'm aware of anyways. Um, now, remember when I was talking about the uh, the launch vehicle stage adapter, like all those like kind of connection pieces, um, you can imagine that these sorts of things, especially like capsules, um, they are um, they're kind of um, they're, they're slaves to the diameter of the vehicle. So the the Orion space capsule has a certain diameter. Uh, SpaceX, their capsule, they have a certain diameter, Blue Origin, the same, the same sort of way. So to, to, in order to, to potentially do that, they would have to come up with a lot of different adapters in order to, in order to be able to connect our spacecraft into theirs. Not saying that it's impossible, but I don't think that there's any plans to do that anytime soon. Yeah, I haven't heard of anything um, either. All right, so um, our next question is, what is, what is your day-to-day -day work life? And include. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it it's well. Now that we're processing flight hardware, um, I'll say this. So during shuttle, um, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun because there was always something going on. There was a, it was like a bee's nest around here. We had we were launching three orbiters. Um, you know, we'd have one in the VAB, one out you know, out of the launch pad, getting ready to go, and then we'd have. Um, We'd have one in one of the orbiter processing facilities as well, you know, coming back from launch. So there was always that bees nest going on. And then, you know, there was this transition period where we were doing a lot of design and development of all of the systems, both uh, flight and ground that it took in order to get this program, you know, uh, no pun intended off the ground. So now, now that um, we've, we're receiving flight hardware um, and we're stacking flight hardware, we're, we're actually building the rocket that that feeling that like kind of like that bees nest feeling is is back and so a lot of my day revolves around what's going on with the bees nest so you know we always run into we run into issues we run into problems that that net needs solved and you know i'm lucky enough to be in charge of a lot of really smart engineers that go and solve those problems so at that million foot level, that's my day to day. I solve the problems that are going on at the space center so that we can keep moving forward. That's yeah, that I bet that's a tough job. There's there is definitely a lot going on right now for sure. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you have a lot of great engineers that are working with you right now. So yes. how do you become an engineer? That's the first part of the question. The second one, what's it like applying to be an astronaut? I'm curious <laughs> about that process. Uh, yeah, I've never sure. applied, but there may be some folks out there that are interested in doing and doing that in the future. Yeah, sure. Now I can touch on that. I mean, I I don't know if I'm the person to listen to because I haven't actually I got an interview yet. But um, I didn't. You know, I I've had maybe step one of success for it. But for uh, being an engineer, anyways, when you're when you're young, uh, you know, I when I was a kid, I I I love. I grew up on this on the shuttle program. I had like a little. I had a actually it was a pretty big toy space shuttle that I would. Uh, it was an orbiter that I would push across the floor and stuff. Um, I always dreamed of like being an astronaut and working on the space program and stuff. But honestly, um, through my, through my academic career, um, you know, my, my, I, I went, I got my BS degree in civil engineering 
Um, I also was like fascinated by by bridges, buildings, and so on. Um, but still, you know, worked very hard and um, and had kind of a knack for for math and, and science along the way as well. So it took a lot of work. Um, I didn't really go into college or anything, or even in the grad school, knowing that hey, I'm or even really having in the back of my mind, I'm going to go work at Kennedy Space Center. I really thought I was going to go work on bridges, to be honest with you. Um, I was very fortunate after grad school that um, I, I applied to a job at the Kennedy Space Center, got an interview, and you know, lo and behold, they hired me. Um, and really, it's been um, history ever since. It's been, it's been a really fun ride. There's a lot of different ways to, to be an engineer. Um, I think the way I'm, you know, the engineer that I am, I've been very fortunate and this has been a lot of fun. Um, but I can't say you want to go and build bridges. If you want to go work on cars, if you want to go work on uh, software and so on, there's a lot of different ways to, to have fun and be an engineer. Um, and I, you know, I chose one of those paths. That's awesome. Um, and you, for, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself. You made it farther than other people I know that's applied. You got a call back and that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. I know there's some astronauts that I think Clay um, Anderson tried like 10, 12 times, really? you know, before he was finally selected. So, uh, so yeah. it sounds like you're, you're moving in the right direction. <laughs> well, I, well, you put it that way, actually. Uh, it's fun. It's funny you say that because the, uh, the, the, the time that I got called back was actually the first time I applied. <laughs> um, and, and then ever, but um, granted the first time that I applied, there was a, if I'm remembering correctly, there was only like five, six, 7,000 applicants. This last time there was like 17,000 or, or, or 18,000 or something. Um, it was just some ridiculous number compared to the first time that I applied anyways. So the pool was much smaller back then. I did get the, a call back then, but the last two times that I've applied, um, you know, there's a lot of competition out there. Um, I haven't heard anything about this past time, uh, this last time that I've, that I, that I applied, but, um, I can still kind of fingers crossed because I think they're still going through the process. And Patricia, I might have lost you there. And hey there, Eric. Uh, I hey. think Patricia's just on a little bit of a pause. Yeah. We had a little bit of a pause there for oh, right. Patricia's uh, sound. So we did have another question exactly about that um, uh, question on astronauts for you. Um, what do they asked, what kind of education do you think needs to be for someone to become an astronaut? So education, so they, um, it used to be that they only required a bachelor degree in engineering and one of the physical sciences. Um, I believe also um, that included medical doctors, um, that included biologists, or if you ever seen the movie, The Martian, you know, he was a botanist and stuff. So I think all those, all those types of degrees count as well. But um, this past time that they, that they had their, their, their astronaut candidacy announcement, they, um, they did up the ante a little bit and they, I believe that they required the, all of the applicants to have a, a master's degree as well. Um, so, I, and it's probably rightfully so, uh, just because uh, of the, the, the breadth of the pool that is applying. And I don't know if they've had actually somebody that even hasn't had a master's um, actually 
go through the process successfully and get hired as an astronaut since the, the late 80s or even early 90s. So a, a vast majority of them even are, are PhDs. So um, having a master's is the minimum requirement now. Um, having a PhD is uh, definitely helps helps your cause if that's you know okay, if that's then. the path that you want to take. Well, we need a master's degree here at the library, so you're saying there's a chance. Yeah. Sorry if you hear the announcement going over the, <laughs> the speaker here. Checking for any last questions here as we're coming up towards the end of our program here with everybody. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, we have the same things going on here in libraries. <laughs> okay, um, I did have one last uh, thing was, do you have a time frame? When is Artemis 1, 2, 3, 4? Do we have any kind of calendar yet for that? So I'll give you the the, the best answer that I know of at, at this point. Um, so we're we're really um, we're working very very hard in order to launch Artemis One by the end of this calendar year. Um, but never, nevertheless, you know, I was talking about earlier. You know, we always have issues and and problems that come up that that we got to solve and make sure that we're doing the right thing uh, in the right way. Um, we're really working very hard for the end of this year, um, and you know that's that that's going to be a really important milestone for us um, in the future for Artemis two, three, four, those are gonna be in subsequent future years, you know, talking like 20, 2023, 2024, 2025, around those timeframes there. So there's gonna be a little bit of a lull in the action before we, you know, we potentially get back to a little bit more of a steady cadence in the future. And do you think that this is going to be as re more recoverable than the shuttle was for able to for turnaround for capsules? So the the capsule itself will probably have a, a pretty decent recover um, turnaround time. Um, there was, I mean, during the shuttle days, there was a lot of work that went into um, you know when the orbiter came back. Um, making sure that it was ready for the next launch. Uh, I mean, when I say that there was like a bee's nest involved, it, it, it really was. There was a lot of work involved in doing that. And um, actually, at the, it's, it's, it's interesting. At the beginning of the shuttle program, they actually thought that they were going to be launching those things, you know, week after week uh, within one another. And then, you know, after, uh, you know, you, you get some unfortunate incidents like, you know, Challenger and so on, you learn a lot and you learn that, you know, you, you really need to spend the time and make sure that you're doing it right. Um, so I don't think that we're going to necessarily, we're not going to get back to that tempo that we have during shuttle. I mean, we only have one vehicle uh, with, with Orion, but, um, and, and back then, you know, we had, at, at least at the end of the shuttle program, we had three orbiters that we were, that we were turning around. But, um, it's going to be a similar type of effort. I mean, the Orion has a heat shield, just like the orbiter did on the bottom. And there's going to be cleanups for that. There's going to be cleanups for the the uh, the capsule itself, checkouts, and so on. So um, it's not going to be exactly the same, but it will be. You know, it'll be it'll be similar. Okay. 
Okay. And we got one final question for you on, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear from you. Who actually gets to name the rockets? Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Well, NASA NASA names the rockets. Um, I, um, you know, I I wish I I knew the answer to that. I, I don't actually know who gets the to actually name name the rockets themselves. That's a good question for even me. I'm sure Dr. Google would would give a really good answer. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here, Sir Eric. Absolutely. Yep, really happy to be here. I'd really appreciate it. We're going to really fun things we've had now all of a sudden everybody's getting any questions we're going to wrap up and we're going to add these on don't forget this this will be out and available for everyone out on the show thank you to there we go Thank you to Eric. Thank you to NASA for all of the help today. If anybody has any questions, creationstation at Broward.org. We'll see you all soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>